Second Corinthians chapter 5. At the end of the chapter, the apostle says, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Let's pray once more. Lord, hear us as we ask for help. Help us as we call upon you. Lord, show again your beauty and your glory. For the praise of your great name we ask, through Christ our Saviour. Amen. Amen. Be reconciled to God. Come back to God and receive his embrace. Come to the Holy One, though you are a sinner, that God himself may receive you and with justice and with mercy bring you to himself and make you his own now and forever. Be reconciled to God. Now, on what basis can a preacher make such a plea? What's the foundation for such an invitation and an exhortation? On what basis can you respond to it? How can you come to God? On what foundation can you expect to be accepted with the High and Holy One? What is the grand argument for the good news? What is the great warrant of faith for every sinner like me and you? Paul says at the end of the chapter, we implore you, we plead with you, not just because we like it or think it's a good idea, but on Christ's behalf, as though God himself were pleading through us. So with divine authority, we say, be reconciled to God. And we can urge it and you can respond to it. Why? Because God made him who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It is because our God and Saviour has acted in sovereign grace. This matchless mercy, this perfect justice has been demonstrated. God has shown himself, according to Romans chapter 3, just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So this gospel offer and this call for faith hang upon the fact that God has done something. When we were looking this morning in Luke chapter 23 at the sufferings of our Lord as he goes up to the cross, what is it that we are meant to be considering? What is the great transaction upon which we hang our hopes of salvation and glory to come. It is this, that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You have then here, first of all, the substitute who has been appointed, then the sin that has been imputed, and then the righteousness that has been granted. Who is the substitute who has been appointed? God made him who knew no sin...
to be sin for us. The apostle, of course, is speaking of our Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God incarnate. You need to pack behind this, if you will, all that history that we've studied from Luke's gospel, all the detail that you know from Matthew and Mark and John. Here is the one who was born of a woman, born under the law, as the apostle says in Galatians and chapter 4. Here is the one of whom Isaiah spoke, who has been despised and rejected by men. This is the Christ who was tried and tempted, tested throughout his earthly life. The one to whom Satan came and tried to turn him away from his righteous course. The one of whom it was testified that every step of the way he was doing his father's will. The man who, as he came especially toward the end of his life, that suffering and that sorrow seemed to reach its crescendo so that he was afflicted, he was troubled. Again, you have all that language that uh, lies behind uh, or that is expressed in the, the Psalms of suffering that David has and the misery and the horror that lies behind that language coming to its awful conclusion in the darkness of Calvary when this Jesus cries out my God my God why have you forsaken me born of a woman yes born under the law yes despised and rejected yes tempted by the evil one yes afflicted and abandoned yes yet without sin no sin in this substitute that's the divine declaration. It is not just what we heard that, that Pontius Pilate said over and over again, I find no sin in him, I find no evil in him. This man has done nothing wrong. The language here is emphatic. This Jesus knew no sin. Now he grasped its nature. He understood what sin was. But he never participated in it. He turned his back upon it absolutely. There was no appetite in him for it. There was no response to its allurements in him. In his nature, in his desires, in his deeds, there was nothing which in any way rendered him ob objectionable to God, obnoxious to holy justice. There was no landing spot in his soul for the assaults of the wicked one. There was no launching pad for sinful desires. There was no experience of sin for Jesus out of his heart. My friends, that's so far removed from our experience. To think of someone who is truly man like us, but spotless and without blemish. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, drives it home. When he bore our sins in his body on the tree, he did so as the sacrifice of God, a lamb without blemish and without spot. Through all his humanity, body and soul, thought, word and deed, from the very moment in which he was formed in his mother's womb up to the very moment when he laid down his life upon the cross, Never a moral mark upon him. Never a sinful stain upon his record. Spotless, pure, perfect. 
no sin. You see, any punishment that the God of heaven might mete out against me, I deserve. If God were to send me to hell now, I would not be able to speak a word against the righteousness and justice of his condemnation outside of Jesus Christ. I deserve whatever I might receive, and so do you. If Christ got what he deserved in himself, nothing but complete divine approval. The son in whom the father was well pleased, never a moment, never a shade of a moment, in which the father ever had cause to draw back and say, that is not pleasing to me. The substitute appointed is the eternal, spotless son, the incarnate God, Christ the son who's taken flesh and blood, who is as human as you and I are, and yet without sin. That makes it all the more terrible that we then read of the sin that's been imputed. There is this one who knows no sin. He's aware of it. He knows what it is, but it is outside of his personal experience. It's never come out of his soul. He's had to interact with sinners. He has dealt with the consequences of sin. But now God makes that sinless one sin for us. And again, the language is weighty. God made him who knew no sin, sin. You feel the weight of those things punching home. God made the one who knew no sin, sin for us. There again, that language of substitution. God accounted his sinless son in the flesh to be sin in his eyes and under his judgments. And again, these words are short. Who can understand the depths that are spoken of? Who can appreciate what it is for the most high and the most holy God to look upon the one who came from his bosom, to look upon the only begotten son, the object of his eternal delight, the one who has pleased him through all his earthly career, and to say that sin is on him. Perhaps you know of the scapegoat. One of the two there when Israel was in the wilderness, when the Lord first established some of those temple or tabernacle practices, that there was a goat that was brought in. And on the day of atonement, the high priest would lay his hand on the head of the goat and he would confess the sins of the people. And that animal symbolically released into the wilderness, would carry away upon it all the sins that the people had committed. You could have seen, if you will, in picture form, imagine the nation as this goat is led out into the distance and they're saying, in in some sense, God is showing us our sin being taken away. We're no longer guilty. It's not on us. It's not in here. It's not ours any longer. 
It's on that beast and that beast has been taken away and he's taken our sin with him. Well, you have that perhaps better known image of the sacrificial lamb. And that's why Peter uses that language again and again. The lamb without blemish and without spot. A lamb pure and perfect in itself. And that's the animal that dies in the place of the sinner. That's the representative. That's the substitute. And over and over and over again under the old covenant, year after year, a lamb dies. Day after day, week after week, month after month, and their flocks and herds, they're bringing them forward. Every year, a goat is sent out into the wilderness. Why? Because the blood of bulls and goats can't truly cleanse away sin. But now here is the Lamb of God. Here is the one sacrifice for sins forever. The one who bears sin for others. The guiltless one who is counted guilty guilty on behalf of others. And God looks on and acts toward his beloved son accordingly. Which means that divine wrath is poured out to its fullest extent upon the head of the sinless one who has been made sin for us. Again, this is why when you see Christ going up to Calvary, there's not just a a sympathetic sentiment, not just a, a distress that anyone should have to suffer like that. Brothers and sisters, he's carrying your guilt and mine to the cross. Our shame is upon him. Our transgressions have been put to his account. The pollution that he carries is mine. The penalty he bears is the one that should have fallen upon me and you. Those torments, those agonies, not now so much even of his body, but the horrors of his soul as the darkness comes over him, as he cries out in the shadow, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he rehearses in his, in his spirit the experience of Psalm 22 in a way and to a degree that David really did not understand when he first spoke those words. Why is he there? It's because of my sin and yours. He knows no sin. It's not his. It's mine, but he has taken it. It's yours but it's been put to his account. This is that language of imputation. It's been lifted from you. It's been transferred to him. It's been laid upon his almighty shoulders. And so Peter can use that earthy language, that language of incarnation. He bore our sins in his own body on the tree. He carries them away. He suffers the punishment that our sin deserves. And my friends, that substitutionary sacrifice, 
the death under the wrath of a holy God, of his beloved Son in the flesh, the one who knows no sin being made sin for us, that is the only answer that a guilty soul will ever have. It is the answer to every stricken conscience. For every guilt, every transgression, every iniquity, every instinct to sin and every action of sin. If you are to stand before God, then you will need this sinless one to be the one who stands for you in your place for judgment. But the transaction has not yet been completed. God made this sinless one, the man who knew no sin, to be sin for us in order that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, there is a purposeful outcome here. We do not stand before God in the righteousness of a mere man. You don't stand before God now in your righteousness. It's not that Christ has taken away your sin, and fortunately, now that that's been done, you've just managed to scrape through, and God in justice is obliged to accept you because on the great scale of things, you've probably just done enough. No, we have become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. The righteousness of man could never close the breach between God in his holiness and us. Even with our sin taken away, where is that purity that God delights in? Where is that perfection which God desires? It's only in the man who knew no sin. Only in the man who performed perfect righteousness. And so the very righteousness of God that is in him is bestowed upon us our sin then is taken by him. He has taken that out of the equation for us. He has taken all the wrath of God that that sin deserves. I don't like the language that is often used today of absorption. No, wrath fell upon him. It's substitution. He died as I should have died. He suffered as I should have suffered. He was struck as I deserve to be struck because my sin was his but his righteousness has been given to me. We are constituted righteous in him with the very righteousness of God. So that now when God looks at you, he looks at you through the lens of his, his righteous son. God deals with you, Christian, in accordance with your new status. Not just as someone whose sin has been removed, but someone who is now clothed with God's righteousness in Christ Jesus. Do you understand, believer, that everything that God does with regard to you rests upon the basis of what he has accomplished in his son, Jesus Christ? God cannot now punish you because he has punished Christ instead of you. God will bless you, not because he's somehow obliged to by some heavenly formula, but because this is the great purpose for which he's given his son. So you have been delivered from wrath. 
Hell has been exhausted on your behalf by your substitute, Jesus Christ. And now you stand accepted in the beloved. There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. No wrath can fall upon you. And God does smile. Oh, my friends, if only we grasp this, that there is peace with God because of Jesus Christ. We have been justified on account of faith. Christ has granted even this to us, the purchase of his work upon the cross and by faith worked in us by the Spirit. We laying hold upon him. We have Christ and all that he is and all that he has done. And there is peace with God and grace now overflows and there's nothing, not in heaven or on earth or under the earth, not in heaven or in hell that can break that relationship. The offer is sure. The opportunity is real. The blessing is entire. The salvation is complete. Jesus Christ didn't come to open the door a crack so that you could force your way in. Christ came to save his people from their sins. And now you stand accepted in the beloved. God will deal with you as he deals with the son of his love. Don't imagine for a moment that means well, maybe he'll punish me. No, that's the whole point. God raised him again from the dead. Once his work was completed and done, the testimony was given. This is still my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And in one sense, I was never more pleased with him than when he cried out in an agony of distress and separation as my wrath for sin fell upon him as he had been commissioned to do in accordance with the work that he had embraced. So now, brothers and sisters, we are sons of God. You're in the family. And you cannot and will not be cast out. You are secure in blessing. Heirs of God and joint heirs together with Christ. The love that God had for you from before the foundation of the world has been expressed in Christ Jesus and everything that happens to you is simply a further expression of that divine love. The deepest depths of your experience and its highest heights, all of them are the love of God toward you in Christ working itself out to the praise of the glory of his grace that ultimately you may be conformed to his image. And when you stand before the great white throne when you come to the day of judgment when you're in the presence of the living and true God when the judge of all the earth this very Jesus calls you to account what will your plea be? Jesus has lived has died for me Justice itself will welcome you into the glory to come. Mercy will embrace you as you enter into the presence of God. For justice and mercy have met together and kissed. Righteousness and peace are locked in embrace because Jesus Christ 
was made sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Salvation has been secured. Be reconciled to God. See, that's the warrant for the gospel offer. The work is completed and done and shall to eternity last. I don't need to embellish it. I don't need to buff it up. I don't need to make it any better. I couldn't if I tried. I don't need to add to it. You don't need to improve upon it. You need not in any way contribute to it. Be reconciled. Why? Look at what God has done in his son. Trust him. Why? Look at what God has done in his son. I need to do nothing more for that warrant, nothing more for that offer. You need to add nothing to the finished work of Jesus Christ. It is complete, perfect, full, entire and eternal. Because everything has been accomplished, the sinner has hope. Be reconciled to God. God's grace is your glory. It is this that gives angels something to stare at. It is this that stuns everything but the divine mind. What but infinite wisdom could have concocted a plan such as this? What except infinite love would have dared to offer the incarnate son? What but eternal, inexpressible power could have accomplished these things? What but divine compassion could have stooped so low to raise so high? What but the divine perfections could have crafted something so perfect, designed and intended for sinners such as we are? This is where God proves himself just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. What is faith? Faith is dropping onto this Jesus. What is the faith that saves? It is a laying hold upon God's saving son. It is, you see, not your faith that saves you. It is Christ who saves you by faith. Don't look at your faith. Don't look at yourself. Don't turn back toward yourself. Look to him who knew no sin, but was made by God sin for us in order that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Consider that glorious and completed transaction. Sin and all its punishment put to the account of the sinless one. Righteousness and blessing put to the account of the sinners. Brothers and sisters, that is God's grace. It is the grand argument for the gospel. It is the great warrant for faith for every believing sinner. God has acted to save in the person of his son. And that is our eternal hope and lasting joy. Amen.